Okay, if you would, this morning, please turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. Remember, this is now week 14 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And last week, we came to Genesis 12, where God encounters one man, a pagan, makes a covenant with him, Abraham. And we saw that ultimately, not only with him, but with every person, Jew or Gentile, who is of the faith of Abraham. The promises God made to him are for all who are of faith. Which leads us this morning to the crucial question, what is the faith of Abraham? What is the essence of that? faith. What's going on inside of us sinners who have come to faith? What is the dynamic that is transpiring unseen in the heart? And so to help us with that, calling upon the writer to the Hebrews and ultimately therefore the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 19. I will read them. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. And therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that this morning we all see the meaning of what we just read. That simple. Help us see what's clearly here on the page. And therefore help me as a pastor and as a teacher to unfold it, to illustrate it. Help us see and love what we see. To the glory of your holy name and gospel. Amen. So this morning, there are two major portions of what I just read that we're going to look at, and that is verses 13 to 16, and then 17 to 19. We're going to spend over 90% of our time on verses 13 to 16, which gives us a glimpse of the internal workings of saving faith going on in Abraham, in the patriarchs, and Sarah, in the text. In other words, the question that we're posing, and we're going to have answered by verses 13 to 16, is what is going on in the heart that is called faith? And then we will look at verses 17 and 19 briefly and watch that if that faith is there, it obeys. It does act out. It does move externally. So first, let's look at verses 13 to 16. We'll begin with verse 13. The writer says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Up to their last breath, he says, they were believing, trusting. They were of faith. They died that way without having received many of those things that they had faith to receive. Promises. Now, he just mentioned Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And so he says, these died in faith. It's got to mean they died, in other words, in such a way that was indicative that they were believers, that they were trusting promises that they never saw fulfilled in this life. They didn't receive most of these promises. Maybe some, but not most. And so the writer to the Hebrews, to the church of Jesus Christ, he has a lesson. And his lesson 
is that the promises of God, not just for Abraham, but in the first century Jewish Christians he's writing to, and to us today, the promises of God are mainly future. Still. He works it out now. Let's read the whole verse. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them, the promises, from afar, from far off from them, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The writer wants us to realize that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were sojourners. They were not merely meaning in Canaan, but in their mortality. Sojourners. Not at home. In a temporary place. They were exiles from their true home. They were refugees. And his point is, so is everybody who is of faith. Including on this side of the cross of Jesus. Not even historically, 2,000 years ago, the coming of Jesus. Not even that has brought all the promises to us to be experienced. Now, what Jesus did is purchase them. Even Abraham was promised him, was purchased from the foundation of the world because Christ was to come and to purchase it. And so what Jesus did in His coming is He put down the foundation of the promises and made them visible and made them historical. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God, and when he writes that, he means, look at the Hebrew Scripture when he's writing this. Long before Jesus come, look at them laid out. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's why they are assured. But the promises, the vast majority of them, are still future. Not just for the first century Christians, but for us today. And we are thus still aliens and exiles and sojourners on the earth like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The life of faith, in other words, the, the very essence of being a Christian is the life of a sojourner. A wanderer who is away from the homeland. 
want you to feel the words in the Bible as it flows through. So first, when we go to the Abraham story in Genesis chapter 23-4, remember Abraham, he owns no land. He's a sojourner. It's a picture here, but he does need to bury his dead. And so he pleads with the sons of Heth this way. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Then his grandson, Jacob, later on when he ends up in Egypt and he's dying now, Jacob says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. So Jacob sees this now as my temporary, earthly, mortal life. Hundreds of years later, King David looked back at the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and David included himself in the lineage of sojourners on earth when he penned in Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears because I am a sojourner with you. A guest like all my fathers. And so no wonder when you come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaks that way. When he writes in Philippians 3.20, Church, our citizenship, our homeland, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11 to the church spread abroad through all the provinces. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So the point is that the life of faith is the life of an exile, of a refugee, of a sojourner. Just as Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, the promises of God are our real home. And we have seen them far off. But thus is the word he used, and we greeted them. Yes, yes. And thus they make us restless. They make us uneasy in this world and worldliness because those promises in the heart of faith have shaped our way of seeing. 
thinking, a feeling. That's Christianity. That's why the Apostle Peter describes this faith this way in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Though you have not seen, like Peter did, but though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and there's an effect. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And it's filled with glory, and you are obtaining as the outcome of that faith the salvation of your souls. So the promises of God in the heart of faith have infiltrated our being and they've colored what we value or don't value anymore. They have permeated and changed our goals and our desires. We've been put out of sync with this present world because we're of faith, because we treasure heaven, the promises that lay up for us in the future. Now, back to Hebrews 11. Look how the writer, how he argues for that kind of life now as he now goes in to try to describe by the Holy Spirit, he's describing what's going on internally within Abraham. Notice in verse 14, he says, about those who say, we're sojourners, we're aliens down here. Then he picks up and says, for people who speak thus, in other words, people who speak like that, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He's describing faith. They're seeking. That's the key word here. They make it clear. This is what's going on inside of them. They are seeking. A sojourner like Abraham, living by faith in God's promises, is seeking another country. He's not settling here. He's unwilling to be conformed to the world and the culture that he finds himself in. He's seeking the one that is not yet, but is to come. And that's why it says, like Abraham, he greeted it from afar. And then in verse 15, the writer goes on. And he argues that if the country the patriarchs were seeking were on earth in some kind of a obtainable, worldly way, then they could have gone back. But he says this, Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
And his point is, they didn't. They lived in tents, and they refused to go back to Ur of the Chaldees. Why didn't they go back? The answer is verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. The life of faith, according to this passage, seeks a country of its own. A homeland of its own. That's verse 14. And verse 14 goes on to say about that same seeking that it desires a better country. A heavenly country. So, the writer in verses 13 to 16 here, he points us to the, the, the heart. Not the fruit of faith, but the heart and the essence of what saving faith is. He is not yet at this point focusing on outward acts of faith but only on inward desires of faith. He says faith considers this world, it considers what it offers, and faith considers the promises of God. And faith desires one over the other. Faith seeks a better country. It sees the promises from afar and it's stunned. It is just stunned by the overwhelming desirability of what is being offered. So it greets it and it begins to feel more and more like a stranger even in its own family, like an alien, like an exile from the true homeland. And that's why Abraham in the New Testament is called the father of our faith. Because faith in Jesus, hearing the gospel, being called, and Christ to you is the power of God and the wisdom of God because He is the yes and the amen of all the promises. That dynamic of what faith is is no different than David's or Abraham's. It is the same. So much that Abraham is the father of it. That Paul will go to him and say, be like him. Christian, faith sees the promised future that God offers. There's some now, yes, but the core of what the Gospel is promising is later. And it sees it. 
it, according to the text, desires it. It sees it as more appetizing than all the sin and the worldliness that it ate before faith came alive in the heart. Now think about it. If that is true, we live in a day and an age of American evangelicalism where so many people are watering down what saving faith is. Turning it into a mere, if I can get them to make a decision at youth camp where everything is fun and exciting, and even God may seem exciting. The music is good, and there's a heaven and there's a hell. And if we can get them to say the prayer and make a decision, then we will offer to them an assurance. You're going to heaven because you have done X, Y, and Z, when we don't know whether that has necessarily happened in them. It may have, and it may not have. My sister and I can probably remember, right, 10 years ago, one of our nieces came from Hawaii where she grew up. She was at the house and was so excited to tell her Christian aunt and uncle, I'm a Christian now. Because she went to either a youth thing or a youth, no, I don't know what she did, but they, she said a prayer. She, they told her she's a Christian. She had a Bible, but not a Bible Bible because you would never give a Bible Bible, evidently, because it looks too religious. It looks like a Bible. So they, they had a Bible that looked like a magazine. And, and it's hard to feel like my sister and I did just talking to her and asking questions, what's that mean? And if you talked about anything like what is sin? What does it mean to be sin? She's just clueless. We would love for her. It's not, we're, we're, not, we're not just pessimists. We want her to really come to Jesus. But 10 years has gone by and clearly nothing had happened in the heart. But now the danger is she'll think all of her life, yeah, of course, I, I, I did the Christian thing. That's what it is. They told me I'm a Christian. That's how you become a Christian. You go. Now she may have been inoculated to the real thing. The point of God choosing Abraham to be the model of our faith. The point of this text in Hebrews 11 is that living and Dying by faith means having new desires and seeking new satisfactions. Verse 14 says they were seeking a different kind of home than that anything this world offered. Verse 16 says they were desiring something better than what this earthly existence, as we know it, could offer. They were gripped. That's the point. They were gripped by God Himself and these 
otherworldly, everlasting promises. So gripped that in light of it, nothing else would truly satisfy. So what is faith? It's seeing the promises that God makes and gives freely and experiencing because of that sight, experiencing a change of values so that you desire the promises now more than what you desired the day before. More than you desire worldliness and all that it has to offer. The promises are rooted in a person who makes those promises and faith seeks to know Him because He really is the end of the rainbow of all the promises. And so it seeks to know what is promised and to cherish those promises and to be satisfied with them so that then what results to one degree or another is a new lifestyle. It emerges out of the seeking. It emerges out of the desiring. And thus it puts a person a little bit more out of sync with those who don't see it. The world. And the last few weeks in Genesis that we've seen have just given illustrations of that faith. It caused one nut for decades to build a boat in a desert. He was out of sync. It causes another guy to leave the comforts of family and culture and familiarity and to go to a land where he knows not where he's going. And it caused that man one day to lift a knife and ready to plunge it into one of the most prized possessions of his worldly life. That's what that faith does. Now last week, I remember... Do you remember the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7? He said this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now here it is. I wonder if this is a, a promise that you feel, as Peter would say, inexpressible joy over. Here it is. And throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, the Hebrew writer picks up on that, and he says in verse 16, let's hear it again, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, okay, now he draws a conclusion from that faith. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. I'll make a covenant, an everlasting covenant, to be God to you. And you're of faith. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called your God. Now think about that for a moment. I hope the answer would be yes in this room. Do you want God, the Creator, of everything and of you? Do you want Him to be unashamed to be called your God? If so, what must you do? Must you go do some magnificent feat on, on behalf of God? And then bring it back to him and say, look, look what I have done. Then he won't be ashamed of you. Must you take all of your sin and your lifestyle and clean your life up morally? And then bring it to God. So that now, oh, good job. Now I'm not ashamed. Or, or maybe it is to become more religious. Maybe if you just get your batting average of church attendance up to 94%, then bring it to God. Look at that. Now he's not ashamed. None of that will work. Any movement to try to even do that with God is sinful. The answer in the text is simple and it's stunning. What must you do to have God say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God? The answer is desire him. Desire the city He has prepared for you. Desire heaven and the resurrection and eternality with Him more than this earth. Desire the promise of eternal happiness with who God is to you? That's the answer. Now, think about it for a moment because I want to take that now and bring out the large this whole series, the purpose of God in the series and how that's fitting. First, that's a negative way to say it. I am not ashamed of you. But what does that mean? What, what if, if you were to turn that around, say, say that in a positive way without the word not, what would that mean? 
Well, isn't it true? That would be God saying, okay, I can say, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. Or in other words, I'm pleased to be called your God. Now, why would God be pleased to be called the God of someone who desires Him, who desires the city that He prepares over all the temptations of the world? The answer is simply because desiring God is what honors God. Now, where we started is... God is God before Genesis 1.1. He is Holy Trinity, infinitely happy, contented, complete, and needless. And then He created in order not to get something He didn't have. So I'll be pleased for you if you work for me. No, but He created in order to overflow with who He is. Or another way to say it biblically, He created for the extension of His glory. And when you desire something, you call attention to its worth. That's how simple it is. Think about it. Desiring, whatever that is, it's no great achievement on our part. Nobody brags, I hope. If you do, you're sick. You don't know what I'm going to say, and he's laughing. Okay. No one brags about being hungry for one of their favorite meals at one of their favorite restaurants. I'm, so, I'm going to my Mediterranean place. The chicken plate is magnificent. I'm starving. I'm, I don't care where you're I'm going to go. You want to go with me? You can go with me, but I'm going there because I desire that meal right now really bad. No one will look at me and say, wow, you're a fantastic person. What are you talking about? We don't do that. It didn't say anything about me. That hunger says something about the object of my desire chicken plate at X, Y, or Z restaurant. And so, nobody, now and for eternity, Paul makes his point throughout, when you understand the Gospel, when you understand God's choosing, and you understand He gave you faith, and you understand what the faith is, there is zero room for boasting. Nobody will brag about, I desire God. Okay? All right. See, God happens to be the most desirable object to you in all of existence. Far above everything else, and you desire Him? Why does that say anything great about you? It's like saying something great about you because you desire the best meal available. Faith, desiring God, seeking what He promises, doesn't draw attention to us. It draws all the attention to Him who is so delightful and desirable. And thus He's glorified by that. And when He's honored 
In that way, God is pleased. Or say it a different way, He's not ashamed to be called your God. Okay. So we've got to get this. Here's the point. The great battle of faith. The great battle for stronger faith. The great battle for our daily fight of faith is not at the level of behavior. That springs out of it. We'll come there. But the battle is not at the level of behavior. It's not at the level of I did obedience to loving my brother or my sister. I did obedience of fleeing from that temptation of sin. The battle of faith is at the level of desire. So as I said, we'll come back to the behavior part more next week, the entire sermon. But, but before I do close today, I, I, I want to connect it because it's right there in the text. I want us to see that they're inseparable, but they're distinct. We have only been talking about so far the internal dynamic that's unseen, what's happening in her heart, in his heart. What's going on in there? What's happening in Abraham? He's seeking. He's desiring. But, though distinct from its acts of obedience, it's inseparable. And we see that right here in the text. Notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, in other words, God tested him and told him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. He took Isaac and they made the journey. Left the servants and stuff behind and the two of them went up. Tied him up. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So he laid him on the altar. Because he was ready to obey God and end the life of his son. Now the reason that act of faith is stunning is not here because he is a dad and it's a son. That would be huge. And it's not because later on through Moses, hundreds of years later, God will give the law and the Ten Commandments and one of them is do not murder. That's not why it's stunning in the text in Genesis nor in Hebrews 11. The reason it's stunning is Abraham was holding to God's faithfulness of a promise that he will have physical descendants from his body and Sarah's body. And he only has one. And he's 13 years old now. His name is Isaac. 
and Isaac does not have any children. And he's supposed to have children through Isaac that are outnumber the stars he can count. That's what's stunning, is he raises the knife. So read verses 17 and 18. So by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So if this boy dies, then everything in human experience down here says the promise of God will fail. And so here's the test. Will Abraham reason his way out of obedience. Or will he trust that the humanly impossible will come to pass? Because it is God who has promised and it is God who has commanded The answer to the question of what Abraham will do is right there in verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back. That was an obedience of faith. Cannot disconnect them. The faith is distinct from the act. Why was Abraham willing to ultimately do it when his faith grew so strong? Only because he was seeking. And because he desired something. God promised far beyond anything. And so, in closing this morning, let's apply this to our lives. We often, often, daily come across situations where obedience to Scripture. Obedience to God speaking in Scripture at times feels like it will bring destruction. It will bring misery to me. It will bring unhappiness if I obey the Lord. If I do what the Word of God is calling me to do, it's going to make me miserable and there's no way that God could turn it all for good. For instance, maybe maybe it's the Bible command to stay married. Really? God? Do you really care about me and my happiness? 
Depends on what you're seeking. Maybe it's the command not to marry an unbeliever. Well, never by implication, don't date them, undo. It's suicide. Maybe it's God's commands concerning sexual purity. His commands to not have any sexual contact with another human being to whom you're not married of the opposite sex. Maybe it's giving to God the first fruits of your income. Maybe it's spending more time with your kids because you're neglecting it. Maybe it's to speak up about Christ and the Gospel to that person, or to that person in your life, or to that person at work. Maybe it's do not be dishonest in your business, even if everybody else does it in order to compete. I can't obey that one because God, there's no way things can go well for me if I obey. Maybe you just refuse to compromise your standard of honesty in life. Maybe it's a very personal nudging and call from God to be a missionary. Or to go study first before you go into the pastorate. Or to become a foster parent. And we can go for hours about the things, the real things we face in life. We see all these kinds of different situations in our very limited, finite mind. And at times, the prospect of following God here or there feels like a loss of Isaac on the altar. So maybe we can taste maybe a little bit of what Abraham must have experienced. If I obey God and follow Him, things won't go well for me. But Abraham's story is in the Bible ultimately for us. They're written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And the question of our daily battle as Christians is, do we desire God in His ways and His promises more than anything? Do we believe like Abraham that God will honor our trust, our obedience by being unashamed to call Himself our God, indeed our Father, for He's the one who has poured out the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That's the only reason any of us ever genuinely, privately say, Father, Abba. And we can trust that He will use all His wisdom, 
His omniscience, His omnipotence, His power, and His love to turn our obedience into an eternity of joy. Many brothers and sisters knew that in a way none of us here yet know. As they were lighting fires underneath their feet while they're tied to stakes. Or whether they're kneeling on a beach in Egypt ready to get their head cut off. He is faithful because the gospel is true. The question constantly as we battle for faith, trusting God in His Word, is do we trust Jesus? Jesus makes all of these promises of God sure and absolute by His blood. He is the yes. He is the amen of all of them. Let's pray. Father, You are the yes and the amen. I pray for every soul in here. I pray for my soul as I do daily. Oh, help our unbelief. Cause us to be wise in seeking You so that by the disciplines of Scripture, prayer, fellowship, our desires will grow toward the beauty of Your promises and thus lessen the desires of our besetting sin. Glorify your name, O Holy Father, to the glory of your Son, whom you have made our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.